So we are continuing this summer teaching series through the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is such a fascinating book. It's unique. There is no other book of the Bible like Proverbs. It is a collection of wise sayings, wise principles that should you follow them, they will lead you to thrive in the Lord. That's the whole goal. We want to thrive in the Lord, so we want to follow these wise principles. I love how Pastor Steve explained the book of Proverbs a few weeks ago. He said, Proverbs is like Old Testament Twitter. I'm sure every verse here fits in 140 to 280 characters. And so, you know, if they had Twitter back then, if they had social media, this is what they'd be tweeting, these wise Proverbs, these sayings, these godly principles, but these godly principles seem disjointed at parts in this book. So it would be difficult for us to preach, you know, verse by verse, it'd take a lot of time. And so we are, by nature of this book, addressing it topically. However, we want to be faithful to the text. We want to preach topically and exegetically. Exegetically means from the text. We want to derive the author's intended meaning from the scriptures, not forcing our opinions and our thoughts into what we think Proverbs should say. Now, I tell you that as kind of a disclaimer, because today we are talking about the topic of pride. Yay! The Bible says a lot about pride. Proverbs says a lot about pride because we have a lot of pride. And I'm going to tell you right now, this will sting. But it's a good sting. It reminds me, you know, when you're a kid and you fall off your bike and you run to your mom, mommy, you have this big gash on your knee. And what does she do? Okay, she sits you down. She pours, you know, hydrogen peroxide and rubbing alcohol on it. And then you're like, ah, and it hurts, but it's a good hurt. It's a cleansing hurt. I think we need that sting in our lives, in our hearts, because we have so much pride. We need God to reveal the pride so that he can remove and cleanse it. So what is pride? Simply, pride is exalting self over God and others. It's an excessive preoccupation with self. Even in self-pity, even in low self-esteem, it's self focus. Someone might, you know, oh, woe is me, pity me, I have low self-esteem, and it seems like humility, but it's false humility. That's a form of pride. It's still making everything all about us. Self-abasement is still self-focus. Soren Kierkegaard wrote, spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. I love how Thomas Watson said it. Pride seeks to un-God God. Mm. Unfortunately, pride in our society has become a celebrated thing. We are expected to have pride in our accomplishments, in our status, in our possessions, in our wealth, in whatever the case may be. Pride is even a banner waved for entire communities. Self-empowerment is seen as the path to enlightenment. Well, you want happiness? Just find happiness in yourself. You want joy, contentment? Find the solution within yourself. But pride is in all of us. And it rears its ugly head constantly, often when we are not even aware. We can be filled with pride and simultaneously blinded to it. 
Pride is the most insidious sin there is. I'm going to tell you a personal story that is a little more recent than I would like to admit. Our daughters love going to the mall, specifically to the mall playground. You know, one of those indoor playgrounds that has the wall surrounding, has all these things you can climb on and slides made of plastic and rubber. And so kids are everywhere. They're climbing all over these things, climbing all over each other. And so we've been to the mall several times. We know the drill. When you get there, you take their shoes off, you put them in the little cubbies, and then they go run and play while the parents line the benches on the inner part of this playground and sit there and talk and be on their phones. That's the drill, right? So we go and things are great. We're, my wife and I are talking to each other and a security guard from the mall comes up behind us. By the way, if you happen to work at a mall as a security guard and the incident I'm about to describe sounds very eerily similar to something you encountered with a guy who looks a whole lot like me, I'm really sorry on behalf of whoever that guy was. I'm sure he's very sorry. So he comes up behind us and he says, excuse me, ma'am, sir, uh, you have to take your shoes off. We're like, oh, no, no, we took, the, we took the girl's shoes off. No, you have to take your shoes off. The children and parents have to remove their shoes. We can't have shoes on the carpet. Oh, okay. My wife is compliant. She takes off her shoes, puts them off to the side. And I lean over to her and I said, over my dead body <laughs> am I taking off my shoes for a mall playground. Uh, it's going to be a cold day in certain place before I take off my shoes. Something like that. And she goes, really, this is the hill you're going to die on? This is the line you're drawing in the stand? Yeah, apparently. So I'm sitting there, and I'm feeling pretty proud of myself, pretty pretty boastful. And I, you know, I tuck my feet under the bench so no one can see. <laughs> I'm not taking off my shoes. Well, he notices and he comes and stands in front of me. I'm on my phone reading a news article and he goes, sir, I asked you to take off your shoes. You have not removed your shoes. You cannot have your shoes on the carpet. I said, oh, I can't have my shoes on the carpet. Okay. Gotcha. No problem. He walks away. I just move my feet onto the bench and place my shoes on the bench where they're probably also not supposed to be. And my poor wife, Sky, is going, oh, like you could feel her distancing herself from me. She's looking at the guy going. And he's looking, I mean, he, he, he is not happy. He's looking over, he gets on his radio. And sure enough, reinforcements come. One or two other security guards come and now they are conferring together. And then it dawns on me. Sense is knocked into me. Probably was my wife smacking me. But sense is knocked into me. And I realize, oh my goodness, I'm a pastor. And I'm about to cause a mall incident. <laughs> and so shrewdly, I leave the kid's playground. And I walk to the outside of the playground. And I stand behind the wall. And I get on my phone. And I talk with my wife. And I never had to take my shoes off. <laughs> so we're leaving the mall. And Sky says... You feel pretty good about yourself? I do. I really do. She says, huh, so your, your flesh feels pretty satisfied? Thank God for the hydrogen peroxide of our wives. That was stinging truth I needed to hear. And all of a sudden, like, conviction just flooded in, and I'm like, oh, God, what am I doing? 
And I was so upset with myself that this stubbornness and pride and arrogance was just in there. This darkness within me was just in there that came oozing out all of a sudden when it had an opportunity. It's so insidious. Even now, part of my heart wants to do well in this sermon, not so that God would be praised, but so that I would receive the praise of man. Not to exalt God, but so that I would be exalted. Not to glorify God, but so that I would be glorified. It's insidious. Pride is the poison in our veins, the essence of sin, the destruction of souls, the spirit of the world, the core of fallen mankind, the deception of the foolish, the foundation of all mistakes, the nature of the condemned, the heart of the wicked. It has brought nations to their knees and broken the backs of rulers. It has no means but itself and no end but destruction. It is the mask of one's own faults. It does not wish to owe and it does not wish to pay. It gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. It knows no superiors because it does not admit them. It knows no inferiors because it does not concern itself with them. It precedes shame, goes before destruction, comes before the fall, is the elixir that never satisfies, the drink that never quenches, the tonic that only intensifies the thirst for more. Pride. Now let's look at the book of Proverbs. Join me if you will. You could, you could turn there. You could look at the verses on the screen. We'll be going through a lot of them. How does God feel about pride? Well, it is the thing that God hates the most. Proverbs 6, verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to his soul. First thing listed, haughty eyes, prideful eyes. That is to say, arrogant, conceited, self-exalting, puffed up demeanor. God hates it. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. So Proverbs 6, it says that prideful eyes, prideful attitude is an abomination to the Lord. Now a prideful person is an abomination to the Lord. What is an abomination? An abomination is an offense so exceptionally disgusting, so repugnant, so revulsive that you can't even tolerate it. You can't be around it. You can't look upon it. If I can be crass, it's something so revolting, it makes you want to vomit. An abomination is the strongest possible wording for hatred. God hates pride. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Fearing God is crucial to following God. I hope you see that throughout the book of Proverbs. The fear of God is a core principle in Proverbs, and if you fear the Lord, then you naturally have a heart that hates evil. But then look what he says. The Lord says, I hate pride and arrogance. I hate the way of evil and perverted speech. If you don't fear the Lord, then your heart loves self more. And love of self trumps fear of the Lord. And the Lord hates that. It is literally equated with evil. God hates pride and arrogance. He abhors it. He loathes it. He despises it. It's an abomination to him. So why does God detest pride so much? Well, we were created to worship God alone, not self. We were created to worship God. So pride, therefore, is the primary affront to worship. In other words, God hates pride because it is an affront to his glory. Proverbs 25, 27, it is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. Now, I love honey. I love honey. I will drizzle honey on 
anything and everything. I will put it on cereal, I'll put it on oatmeal, I'll put it on a bagel, I'll put it on a cracker. I even put it as sweetener in my coffee. I love honey, but if you eat too much honey, what's going to happen? Pain and stomach ache. Now, initially, seeking your own glory seems appealing. The allure uh, is incredibly enticing. What tastes good to you seems good to you, but in the end, pain and heartache. And our society says, oh no, you do you. You be you. You find happiness in yourself. You find the solution. You just be who you are and be happy within yourself. And it sounds sweet, but eating too much sweets is not sweet. This verse literally says, it is not glory to seek your own glory. The word for glory in Hebrew is the word kabod. Kabod literally has a connotation of weightiness. It's the sheer gravity or weightiness of someone's presence. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but people have been coming in and out of this auditorium throughout the service. And most people don't notice. You know, they're, they're going on, getting on their cell phone, they're, maybe they have to go to the restroom, check on their kids, whatever the case may be, and that's all fine. But if Tom Cruise walked through those doors, or Beyonce, or LeBron James with their entourage, I'm telling you, everyone would notice. All eyes would be on them, including my own. All eyes would be diverted. We wouldn't be on our phones texting. We would be taking pictures. We'd be taking video because we'd be wondering, what are they doing here? Why? Because they have kabod. They have this weighty presence. Someone with kabod necessitates attention, honor, and adoration. And if people of great kabod receive that much honor from others, how much more does the creator of the universe who created them deserve? How much glory does God deserve? Now here's why this is significant. Nothing in all existence offers as much joy and satisfaction as God's glorious presence. Nothing in him is all joy, all delight, all peace, all hope, all love, all life, all contentment, all satisfaction. The most joy and delight anywhere ever is found in God's presence. That probably should get an amen. <laughs> Abiding in him through Jesus, his presence is the greatest thing we could possibly have. Joy and satisfaction only in God alone. God has so much kabod, so much rich splendor and glory, it really cannot even be understood by our feeble minds. And thus, his glorious presence is intended to draw people to himself where they will find ultimate joy and satisfaction. And when we are prideful, it's as if we believe that we can have more joy, more satisfaction, more life in ourselves than in God. And we encourage others in our pride. Oh, you can find joy and satisfaction in me, not in God. Pride is attempted robbery of God's glory. It's trying to steal God's deserved glory for my own, declaring that we have more kabod, weighty glory than God does. That is ludicrous. It's destructive because creation is trying to usurp the creator. So God hates pride because it is an affront to his glory, but also because it is an affront to his design. Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches. Not material riches, but true riches and honor and life. 
Does God want us to have life? Not a rhetorical question. I want to hear from you guys. Does God want us to have true, abundant life? Yes. Now, I ask that knowing you would say yes, but sometimes we forget that. We forget that the Lord wants us to be happy. He wants us to be, have, have life and love and peace. It's just that he wants us to realize it's only in him. And humility leads to that. Pride does not. Think of John 10.10. 10. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and what? Destroy. Our adversary, our enemy, the Satan, wants nothing more than theft, murder, and destruction. And he's the father of lies. He's whispering lies in our ears. He whispers lies to our mind, and we believe them. We believe the lies, not realizing, not remembering that his only intent, his only purpose, his only motive is theft, murder, and destruction. That's what he wants for you. But Jesus said, but I have come that you may have life, full life, abundant life, true life, dare I say eternal life. Pride brings the inverse kingdom, the actual upside down. God wanted us to live and reign with him, but pride flipped that and brought nothing but destruction. Proverbs 16, 18 and 19, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's where we get our phrase, pride before the fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Better to be materially poor than to be financially wealthy or successful or popular or victorious but with a prideful heart. Pride always leaves destruction in its wake. So it's pride before the fall because the proud always fall. I remember years ago, my wife and I had our first wedding anniversary. We'd been married one year, and I'm originally from Colorado. I love skiing. Uh, I've been several times, you know, throughout college and high school, and so I thought, hey, this would be awesome. On our wedding day, or wedding anniversary day, what if we went skiing? She had never been. Now, in hindsight, that's a terrible idea. Don't go skiing trying to teach your spouse how to ski on your anniversary. It's not going to go well. So, you know, it's taken her a while to pick it up, to learn, but she started to figure it out. And so in the afternoon, I handed her a camera. We're at the top of a hill, and I said, okay, I want you to ski down to the bottom of this hill, and I want you to take the camera, and I want you to just film me as I come down the hill. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to dazzle my wife. I'm going to impress her. I mean, it's such pride and arrogance. I'm going to, like, Olympic skier. I mean, you know, shoo, shoo, slalom, come around really, really fast, and I'm going to actually try to freak her out a little bit. I'm going to come razor thin, razor close to her side just to scare her and to make it look like a really cool shot on the camera. And then I'm going to turn around and stop and spray her with snow and she'll love it. <laughs> well, so I started this little trek and I start coming down the hill and things are great. And I get really close to her. I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And I get close to her side, not realizing that she stuck her ski poles right next to her. And I hit the, yeah, you see where it's going. So I hit the poles and go, 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 go. Poles, skis, gloves go flying in a cloud of snow, not sprayed on her, but all over me. I literally have this clip that we're not going to show. <laughs> Uh, 
that is not going to see the light of day. <laughs> Maybe for a nominal fee. This is about pride. Come on. So it was literally pride before the fall. Pride always falls. We get top heavy. We come crashing down. Pride goes against God's intended design. It's so contrary to his nature that his wrath burns fiercely against those who exalt themselves. Rebelling against the God of life and order and holiness leads to nothing but death and destruction. Proverbs 21.4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. Simply put, pride is sin. And if sin is treason, rebellion against God, then pride is the essence and root of all sin. Pride exalts self above God and says, God, I don't need you. And if the Lord hates pride, then logically those who become proud become his enemies. And their pride moves them into a battle line position against the Almighty. I don't know about you, I don't want that in my life. Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Widows back then in ancient days had nothing. Their husband passed away. He's gone. He was probably the breadwinner. So all finances, all savings, all source of income is gone. Usually the social network has been depleted. So no friends, no finances, nothing. Usually widows were left poor and destitute. They were marginalized, pushed to the fringes of society right where God meets them. God defends and comes to the aid of those who are marginalized because in humility, they are more likely to acknowledge their need of him. But the proud, the house of the proud, he tears down, he destroys, he's against them, they are his enemies. Now listen, church, this should stir our hearts because if we are intellectually and spiritually honest, we find pride within us constantly, even if it's in the clefts and crevices of the deep, dark places of our hearts at times. Should it not concern us to have something within us that is loathsome, hateful, despicable, and abominable to God? Should that not bother us? And if you sit here thinking, well, I don't have a problem with pride, that's probably because you're extremely prideful. This is the one indwelling sin that we all have in common. So the question is not, do I have pride, but where is it and how much of it do I have? And so we need to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13 says that. Examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Do some spiritual examination. So we're going to do a little diagnosis on pride, but let me just say this. This is not meant to guilt you. This is not meant to shame you. If you are a follower of Christ, we are freed from guilt and shame. We don't live by guilt and shame. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for sin. He died for God's wrath, absorbing it, and he died to free us from guilt and shame. That's not who you are anymore. So don't look at this with guilt and shame and say, woe is me, oh, poor me, because if you are clothed in Christ, you are righteous. But We need to let the Holy Spirit examine our lives and see where pride is. So let's do a little diagnosis on pride. Don't answer out loud. These are rhetorical. I'm going to ask several questions which are based on several Proverbs. I don't want you to think about yourself or your your neighbor or who's next to you. Don't elbow your spouse. Like, see, you're prideful. Listen, examine yourself. 
So what do the Proverbs say? Well, here's some questions to think through the Proverbs. First, are you concerned with what people think of you? Do you crave attention? Are you a people pleaser? Are you easily defensive or devastated by constructive criticism? If someone says a a stinging truth, a loving, gentle rebuke, are you just offended? Do you feel devastated by that? Or, kind of the opposite, do you not listen to criticism at all? Maybe your view of self is so overinflated, so fragile, that if someone gives even a little whisper of criticism, it just, you don't even want to, you shun it, you don't want to hear it, you stiff arm that. Are you reluctant to admit wrongdoing? Prideful people are right in their own eyes, is what the Proverbs say. Do you see yourself as better than others? Do you compare yourself with others? Prideful people slander, mock, and belittle others, treating them with contempt and derision, standing on their soapbox, on their podium, looking down on others. The prideful rarely, if ever, put others before themselves. Are you quarrelsome and contentious? Do you like to argue? Do your words tear people down? Do you lack a desire for community? If you just like to be by yourself, I don't want to be vulnerable in Christian community. I don't want to be around others. I'm good by myself. Do others consider you not teachable? Do you lack interest in growing as a person? See, fools only want to express their opinions. That's what those Proverbs say. They only want to get their opinion, their point across. They want to prove something without listening and growing. Do you struggle with perfectionism, specifically covering up mistakes sins, and faults. Let me add a few more. Do you, do you struggle with submitting to authority? Do you lack a spirit of thanksgiving? Do you lack gratitude? See, the prideful are almost never grateful. Or what about this? As we go through this series of questions, are you thinking about who else should hear this instead of examining yourself? Oof. How do we do? Probably not great. None of us made it through this scot-free. Pride is in all of us, and pride is like an infectious disease. It spreads, and the more that you try to get rid of it on your own willpower and merit, the worse and more deeply entrenched it gets. Now, if I was to stop here, this sermon would just be bad news. Everyone would go home grumpy, as you should, right? But we celebrate the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is what? Good news. It's good news. And so the antidote to the toxic poison of pride, the solution to sin, is Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the epitome of humility. And only when we humble ourselves and say, God, I need you. I need Jesus. That is when we find true abundant life in him. It's Jesus. Humility is the proper heart posture in Jesus. Proverbs 15 and 33, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. What is humility? Humility is the opposite of pride. So if pride exalts self over God and others, humility lowers self and puts God and others before yourself. Humility is the proper perspective. Understanding who God is and who we are in him. God is God. I am not. Proverbs 29, 23. 
One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. This was radically cross-cultural back then. Ancient biblical societies were honor-shame cultures. They avoided shame. They shunned shame. They sought honor at all costs. John Dixon, in his book, Humilitas, says, Humility before an equal or a lesser was morally suspect. It upset the assumed equation back then. Merit demanded honor. Thus, honor was the proof of merit. Humility implied a diminishment of merit. So it was shameful. And then enters Jesus, who 2,000 years ago flips the script and turns over our, our civilization on its head. Jesus redefined greatness in terms of humility. He says in Matthew 20, if you want to be great, you must be their servant. If you want to be first, you must be their slave. Then in Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12, he says, the greatest among you must be your servant. Whoever seeks to exalt himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Humility comes before honor. The cross before the crown. We just sang that. Only those who humbly understand their place in the Lord will receive honor. Humility understands that honor, dignity, purpose, and identity do not come from self, but only from him. I remember as a kid, I loved to go on the seesaw. You remember the seesaw in the playground? And I would go with my friends, and we'd get on the seesaw. I'd have a friend on the other side. I'd be on, on this end. And on the seesaw, every kid wants to be lifted up, right? So someone has to lower themselves on the seesaw so that I could be lifted up or you could be lifted up. And so you would never want to be, oh, all right, I'll lift you up while I go down. Every, every kid wants to be up in the air, right? And we understand that physically, that has to obey the law of physics. You can't exalt, lift up both sides. But spiritually, it seems like we think we can. We can simultaneously exalt God while exalting self. Folks, you can't do that. You either exalt self, self-exaltation, or there's God-exaltation. You cannot have both. And our heart is the fulcrum. It's the center point on which the seesaw remains. So you can either humble and lower yourself and exalt God, or God will humble you. Lower yourself before God and others. The irony is that pride humiliates us, but humility honors us. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's literally quoting Proverbs 3, 34. And he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time, lowering to be lifted up, lowering to be exalted, lowering ourselves, exalting God. That's the way it's meant to work. So the whole point this morning that Proverbs is making about pride is this. The humble Christian heart exalts God over self. So what do we do about all this? Well, I think three things. Pretty sure all of us have pride. So number one, confess pride. Acknowledge where you have attempted to usurp his throne and rob his glory. Confess it. Acknowledge it. A problem cannot be fixed. It can't be dealt with until it is acknowledged. So confess, acknowledge pride. Second, repent. 
That means you shift your mindset from being self-exaltation to God-exaltation. You surrender and you seek God. You pray that God would help you to lower yourself so that he can be lifted up. In John 3, John the Baptist's followers come up to him and they say, John, people are leaving following you and following Jesus instead. And he responds, and I'm paraphrasing, cool, (laughs) awesome, that's what I want. And then he says this, it's so profound, he says, may he increase and may I decrease, for he who came from above is above all. Wow, that is the prayer of the humble. God, may you increase, may you be exalted and lifted up while I decrease Lower myself before you, prostrate. Be exalted, God. So confess pride, repent of it, surrender it to him. Third, finally look to Jesus. This might be the most important thing. In Philippians 2, it says this, the greatest passage on humility. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very nature, very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the greatest humility in history. But it doesn't end there. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Jesus was humbled and then exalted. The fact that the ruler of the universe, the king of kings, would die horrifically for you, for me, for us as a servant makes no sense. Crucifixion was regarded as the most shameful and brutal death you could possibly have. The greatest became the lowest. And that is why the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Humility is beautiful because it perfectly encapsulates Jesus, the quintessential example of humility, who died to become the curse, who died to absorb the poison of pride and sin on our behalf. You cannot get lower than Jesus did, but you also cannot be exalted more than Jesus is. Humility, then, is only possible through Jesus. To those who believe in him, his humility and his death gives true life true honor, and true ultimate riches in him. Clothe yourselves, therefore, in humility by clothing yourself in Jesus. Trust in him.